You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here on this glorious Wednesday, June 13th at the West One Podcast Network here at Conservative Review. Um, I'm telling you folks, this is one of those days where I need a guest on the show because otherwise I'm just going to blow up this microphone and throw everything off my desk. It's one of those days where I question myself as to what exactly I'm doing in this business. I had a meeting earlier today with some you know, prominent conservatives. And if you would understand on how many issues of consequence, quote, our side is swinging for Soros and the other side, it would shock you. And there's a reason why we are where we are. There's a reason why when it comes to the fundamental issues of our time that, that form our civilization – immigration, law and order, health care, and obviously, obviously religious liberty and property conscience. There's nobody home making the play calls, directing the president to where he should and, and frankly can be and has spoken pretty favorably on, on all those issues in our territory. Instead, we get, as I say, the stinger and not the honey because we don't have a conservative movement. And that was certainly um, brought very close and personal to me today, and I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But first, before I uh, blow up here, I want to bring on a special guest. We had him on before. Um, Chip Roy was running for Congress in South Texas, you know, the district that is being vacated by Lamar Smith uh, between San Antonio and Austin. Uh, he put it on the line. He won the primary. Now he's in the general election. And I wanted to hear from him now that he's on the other side of the primary and kind of get a sense of what he's seeing, what he wants to do, and and what sort of hope we could work out together to change the paradigm, the messaging, the strategy, um, and actually stand on principle. All righty, Chip, are you here? Hey, Daniel. Uh, thanks for having me on, and I appreciate what you do. And uh, don't get too far down. I'll tell you, the conservative movement is alive and well in Texas, uh, among the people, the real voters, the people who are away from the swamp. And we just got to make sure that we keep doing our job to connect with them so that uh, Washington will actually listen. You know, that's what I want, where I wanted to start with you. You know, people like us have been working for years in the system um, where we focus on issues and ideology and legislation. Most people aren't on Twitter all day fighting about politics. Most people aren't reading bills, reading analyses, studying policy issues. They're just not. I mean, they have jobs. And, you know, you decided to actually, you know, we all talk, but you actually decided to run for office, uh, uh, not following the advice of, of some of your friends. And I still, I still think you're crazy. What have you learned from talking to average people and their perception of what's going on and what's important? Well, first of all, uh, I mean, I may be a little crazy, I'll be honest with you doing this. I mean, my life is pretty good in Texas and Texas is a lot better than being in Washington. But as you know, uh, you know, you go through life, the good Lord opens certain doors, and, and I feel very strongly about passing a republic down to my kids better than even the one I inherited. You, that not, um, you know, I hear from people every day who are frustrated with the status quo in Washington, but frankly are very enthusiastic out here uh, in the hill country of Texas, between Austin, San Antonio, and all out to the hill country, very enthusiastic with a lot of the positive movements that they've seen uh, with respect to regulatory relief with respect to tax relief, with respect to judges, with respect to getting us out of the clean power plan, getting us out of the Paris Agreement. These are all great things, and they're great wins that I want to say is a result of a long-time effort by those of us in the conservative movement to hold the line and hold the line, like that scene in Braveheart, where he's saying, hold, hold, until you can get to the place where you've got the opportunity to win. And that's where we are. And we would be winning even much more bigly if you want to use the uh, Trumpian rhetoric, if the Congress would get off its rear end and send legislation to the president who is willing to sign it, I get no greater applause line when I'm out talking to real Texans with real jobs, working hard every day, 
sick of Washington, D.C. interfering with them, then when I say the Congress has a duty under Article One of the Constitution to do its job, send legislation to the desk of the president so that he can sign it without being ashamed of doing so, like what happened in February when he had to sign a trillion dollar spending bill because he knew we needed to do what we uh, need to protect the men and women in uniform. And I think in some ways may even regret that now because of what it means for spending. So we've got the opportunity, but now we need people in Washington willing to take it and not sell us out on immigration and sell us out on health care and everything else under the sun. So, you know, let, let's go down one one by one, the, the core issues, you know, what you're you know seeing, what you're hearing from people on immigration. I find this astounding that we have reached a point in our republic where we've had multiple amnesties, about five or six, since 1986. And the most recent one, which was done illegally by Obama, brought in and precipitated the worst gang and drug crisis in the history of our country. I mean, it's bad. 70,000 people, roughly 70,000, died last year, most of them from illicit drugs brought in or distributed by Mexican drug cartels and all brought in through the UACs, these unaccompanied alien children. And rather than that being treated like the problem, pretty much everyone on all sides is treating that as the solution. I want to get a response from you on this data from Texas. Pursuant to Trump's uh, executive order that he signed the first week he was in office, the DOJ and DHS have to submit a report on criminal alien crime. And we know we have a problem of crime in this country. We have a violence problem. We have a problem with our youth. But when it comes to foreign nationals, there shouldn't be a single crime because you don't let them in. To the extent you make a mistake, you get rid of them. I mean, everyone should agree we should only have good people because it's an elective process. I look at Texas DPS data that's cited by DOJ, and they say that from 2011 to 2018, 663,000 criminal offenses were charged against 251,000 known criminal aliens. These are just the ones known by DHS, meaning more than 50% are never interdicted, so don't have the data. 1,351 homicides, 7,000 sexual assaults, almost 10,000 weapons charges, you know, 18,000 burglaries, and look at this, 79,900 drug charges. What the heck? Well, uh, what you've got in front of you is, uh, is data. And unfortunately, uh, those who are in positions of power today uh, are running from data, running from logic, running from a duty to defend our sovereign borders, and instead are giving in to the false name of compassion uh, in order to feel good about themselves and or avoid a, a political question. I think that it is uh, the opposite of compassion to do what we're doing, which is to leave our borders effectively wide open, uh, allowing children uh, sometimes coming for freedom, sometimes coming as a result of what the cartels are doing, as you pointed out, to be riding on the top of train cars or to be put in dangerous situations or to get sold into the sex slave business because the cartels are now finding other ways to profit as the marijuana trade is becoming less valuable to them. And, you know, obviously opioids, which you've talked about. And all of this is happening in the name of compassion, which, by the way, lays right at the feet of many of our churches, both Catholic and Protestant, many yep. of our leaders who sit up and talk about how compassionate it is to uh, make sure that we handle this properly. And it's the opposite of compassionate. It's causing the problem. It's causing mothers to die in the desert. It's causing kids to get sold in the sex labor. And it is absolutely unconscionable that a sovereign nation refuses to secure its borders and do the basic, uh, uh, basic definition of what you do as a sovereign country to defend yourself. I am appalled at it, and we need to change it. And, and, and you and I have talked about this before. Our job as conservatives is to reset the conversation, reset the baseline on this. We demand that we have border security. We demand that we stop the, what is it? You know the data better than I, 600,000 visa overstays last year. I mean, yep. what, what was the number? Uh, yeah, no, it, it was it was more than that. And, and, and those were just student visas in a couple other categories. Um, so there's right. many more. It didn't include tourist visas. 
Exactly. And you know, and that and who are the nine eleven hijackers? But these overstayed. And when we walk around, you know, patting ourselves on the back, being compassionate, when we allow a million plus people to come into this country every year, it's way more than that. We say it's a million, it's way more than that. And we do so without any regard to who they are, why they're coming, the jobs that are in fact needed, some tech in some cases high tech jobs, while we're building up our social welfare state, preventing Americans from having incentives to work while then increasing the social welfare state for the very people that we're saying come over here for, quote, jobs, unquote. And we do all of that, patting ourselves on the back for being supposed to conservative. It's nonsense. It's unbelievable. I mean, I hear these arguments all the time. I'm obviously hearing it on crime now. And and again, it's something you said at the feet of churches. And I would argue, I mean, it's all, all three major religions. We're seeing some of the organizations that work on their behalf promote what I always viewed as liberation theology and and this moral relativism that you focus in a vacuum on people in a predicament that you with no regard to you know the the broader context then 80 90% hurt by these policies on um, the people you are responsible for there's no balanced approach to any of this and uh yeah i mean it just it just shocks me you made an interesting point i just wanted to bring up by the way a couple hours ago the senate ag committee voted for a massive farm bill that doesn't even have the phony work requirements for food stamps that the House bill has. And what I'm hearing is very interesting. So they're using the 3.8% record low or you know near record low unemployment as an argument for importing more, more immigrants, more cheap labor, but they don't want to use it as a beautiful opportunity to tell people, look, the job market is great. The opportunity is there. We need to get weaned off of welfare and have at least some robust work requirements. So I have um, many disagreements with Senator Lindsey Graham, one of which was he famously said in a Senate Judiciary Committee meeting a few years back when I was there that uh, in response to some question where he had just flip-flopped on something, they said, uh, you know, what are you doing, Senator Graham? He goes, well, if you're looking for consistency, you came to the wrong place. And I usually get a laugh out of that line when I when I raise it, except that he, he I actually disagree with him on it because there's a hell of a lot of consistency that's going on in Washington. They are consistent in refusing to defend the rule of law. They are consistent in refusing to stand up for anything they campaign on in terms of uh, what you talk about, work requirements. Well, let's not even talk about work requirements for food stamps. Why are we even having food stamps in a farm bill? Why does that happen? Why can't these guys just say, wait a minute, you know what? Let's have a robust debate about whether or not we should have food stamps. Let's have a robust debate about what the farm bill should look like. Fixing the ridiculously broken subsidy program, which is harming farmers, harming our country, harming Texas. And so that, I think, is what we need to be looking at. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, these um, policies in Washington continue on through legacy after legacy after legacy of these guys doing the same thing. The same thing, except, you know, it, it just gets worse. That becomes more costly. The programs right. are, there's more dependency or the consequences of the lack of them doing the real job of the federal government, which is sovereignty, safety, and security. Um, you know, the consequences are graver. Obviously, there's no issue of greater importance to the economy, to freedom, to prosperity, to the debt, to everything than health care. I mean, Chip, I just saw, you know, this is from Bloomberg News. Uh, let me get the exact quote here. But DOJ, you know, in a, in a good move from the Trump administration, they said they will not defend Obamacare's inv- individual mandate and the rest of the law um, in light of the latest lawsuit lodged against it, you know, basically because they zeroed out the tax penalty. So then you can no longer say it's a tax. So therefore, if it's not a tax, even under Robert's kind of convoluted reading of the Commerce Clause, there's no way this could be constitutional. And they said, look, we're not going to defend it. So in comes Mitch McConnell and Lamar Alexander, and they say this is outrageous. McConnell said, everybody I know in the Senate, everybody is in favor of maintaining coverage for pre-existing conditions. There is no difference of opinion about this whatsoever. Everyone he knows, as someone with a pre-existing condition, what does that tell you about one of the most fundamental issues? There is no difference whatsoever between the two parties. Well, that's true. But let me first of all just address that. I didn't hear the exact quote, 
But if, if you're quoting him precisely, that there's no disagreement in opinion whatsoever, that's just blatantly false. It's just simply not true. There are a lot of senators who understand the perils of building a healthcare system on the back of uh, coverage first and pre-existing conditions being a requirement of uh, insurance coverage, rather than taking a step back and understanding that the problem with our healthcare system isn't about coverage, it's about cost, and it's about the lack of competition, the yep. lack of ability of doctors to provide care for patients in an open market, like the vast majority of the rest of our economic system, whether it's food or shelter or clothing or any of the other basic human needs, we some for some reason decide to completely restrict the ability for the market to work in healthcare, and then wonder why people can't afford that care. When you've got a problem, you need an MRI, you ought to be able to go to 20 different places to compete. And people are being offered deals and coupons and everything else, just like when I get my oil change, to be able to go yep. get an MRI. Why do I have to sit in some office and go to some third-party idiot who's a bureaucrat <laughs> in Washington or some insurance executive who's been crony through a crony system and made rich by taxpayer subsidies in order to get an MRI. That is complete, unadulterated horse manure. And as somebody with a pre-existing condition, I find it appalling that liberals like my opponent will attack me because he says, well, you've got a pre-existing condition. Why can't you allow for a system that will help everybody wow. else like you were able to have? And you know what? That is crap. We need to make sure we've got a system that everybody, regardless of whether they've got a condition or not, have access to health care at affordable, low rates. Yes, we can have a safety net in place that works, but Medicaid ain't exactly a healthcare system where you want to put the vast majority of the American people like Obamacare yep. did when they shoved 15 million people under the Medicaid rolls, meaning that they're going to get subpar, low rent healthcare when they should be getting the best in the world that the American system has to offer. Don't even get me started on this because it's complete <laughs> nonsense. And the fact that our leaders in Washington want to run away from this tells you everything you need to know about the state of freedom in America today. You know, it, it is unbelievable what you mentioned because 74% of Medicaid is actually, it's the cartel. It's going to the insurance companies. People think it's like some, you know, you know, nice government program. Well, who do you think administers it? It's either insurance companies and then the rest of it, most of it are the big healthcare conglomerate, the hospital monopolies. It's not going right. directly to the people. So it's enabling a monopoly. See, if, if you would just freaking give those people the money in an HSA, and just gave them the money and just cut out the middleman, you would stop this endless price inflation. But instead, you're creating a monopoly. And now they're saying, all right, that'll be 30000 a year for insurance, 40000 50000 And we have no control over it. I, I cannot uh, uh, disagree with anything you just said. I agree completely. And at the, at the end of the day, if you think about what the problem is, you can zero in on cronyism and federal subsidies at the root of the vast majority of the problems we face as a country. And if you blow that up and get back to individuals being able to pay for service, uh, families and uh, uh, charities and other programs being able to step into the breach when you don't have care because of bad luck or circumstances or lose your job, or be able to fall back on a safety net or some sort of insurance or a, maybe a, a health sharing ministries, which a lot of Christian organizations have, there are endless ways in a free market system to make sure that people have ability and access to get the health care without having a top-down government-centered single-payer approach where you end up with a situation like that little boy Alfie in England whose parents couldn't even find a way to take care of their son without having to go to a judge or a bureaucrat for permission, which is absolutely unconscionable and should never be allowed to happen in our country. But our country is barely a half step behind the social welfare state of Europe in terms of what we've got with health care. Barely a half a step behind. You know, I, I know you got to go, and I have one more question, but I, I just I got to bring this up. Um, you mentioned Alfie Evans, and people think, oh, well, we don't have you know socialism here. Well, what we have is what I call kind of a Freddie Freddie and Fanny, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae version of healthcare, where it's funneled through this monopoly. One of the to me, the only thing worse than Obamacare driving up costs and the price inflation, and no one could support could afford healthcare. Um, with dignity anymore. It's it what's worse is the monopoly it's creating on delivery of healthcare. Private practice is being put out of business. So this was just until mid-2016, a big Avalary health study 
um, that's cited everywhere. The number, whereas in 2012, before Obamacare, um, 26% of physicians worked for hospitals. In 2016, it was up to 42%. And likely in 2017, it hit, hit the halfway marker. And almost no young individual graduating medical school is going to open a private practice. We are witnessing because the facility fees, because Medicaid pays more to hospital conglomerates than private practice, because the whole third-party payer system that now controls everything. So, you know, private practice doesn't have the overhead or the, the ability to deal with the overhead because of the paperwork from Obamacare. All these factors created the death of private practice where now you have MedStar this or LifeBridge this rather than a private practice. That scares the heck out of me. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. The the uh, people focus on Obamacare and talk about repealing Obamacare. You know, I always talk about healthcare freedom because we lost healthcare freedom long before Obamacare came along. Obamacare was a reaction and a response to the lack of healthcare freedom and the fact that people felt like they were on the outside looking in of a very broken system in which insurance companies were getting enriched through crony capital dollars flowing through the system while they were losing choice. Doctors weren't able to provide care, and then we ended up with Obamacare, and that's wrong. We need to not just repeal Obamacare. We need to go back farther. We need to get rid of the regulations that are constraining competition, constraining the ability of doctors to be able to provide care, encouraging pharmaceutical companies to basically cut deals so they get enriched on the back of doctors or hospitals instead of having a free competition for the uh, cost of drugs. There are so many ways to blow up this broken system besides going to single payer in the false name of compassion. And by the way, you, you started a question a minute ago that I didn't uh, go back to, which was the lawsuit that's underway right now by 20 states being led by Texas and my former boss, Attorney General Paxton, which is absolutely right to be able to go after these guys for the ridiculousness of now a tax that's not even a tax being at the core, saved by Roberts uh, uh, in, the, in the ridiculous name of creating a tax out of thin air, we end up preserving Obamacare. Of course, the attorney general and these other states are right to go after the uh, Obamacare. It's, it's a house of cards. It's a charade. And we know that. And so uh, I'm, uh, I, I did get particular humor out of watching all these hand ringers in Washington going around saying, well, you know, DOJ should have defended this law. Why? If they believe that the law is unconstitutional and just the fact that Roberts made something out of thin air means, oh, well, it is constitutional. Oh, but wait, the tax doesn't exist anymore. Why should the Department of Justice defend that ridiculous law? It makes no sense. And and I just love the hand-wringing in Washington <laughs> about this. And, That's and, what the swamp does. And Chip, we, we talked about the courts the last time you were on air. That is the essence of Marbury versus Madison, that any federal official even the weak courts, but certainly the stronger two political branches, they have a duty to uphold their oath to the Constitution. They can't support something that's fundamentally repugnant, in the words of Marshall in Marbury versus Madison, the Constitution. That was his whole point that you know a judge has to render an opinion based on the Constitution, even <coughs> if statute says otherwise. But how well, much more so? Well, the other we should say for. We, we should save for another day, judges and Marbury. But yes, at the end of the day, these guys have a duty to defend the Constitution and uphold the Constitution. And if they know something to be unconstitutional, there is no reason for them to go into court and to uh, defend it if they think it's actually unconstitutional. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, Obama's team was right, by the way, to not defend DOMA, because DOMA was constitutional. But you know what? These are disagreements. People have sure. disagreements on it. Uh, but at this point, I do not in all in any way question the Department of Justice saying, you know what, we don't think this is a law that we should go defend. Um, but look, you are uh, you are right. man. keep your head up. We, we can win. There are a lot of God fearing, constitution loving, limited government supporting, uh, low tax wanting, gun supporting, life praising Texans and people across this country who are looking for continued leadership and the truth to get out. And when we get the information out through your work and all of our who've been a part of this conservative movement, get information to the people. We win. Let's take advantage of it. We've got this opportunity. Let's win this November. Let's get conservatives in place and let's set an agenda next January that's defined by us and not the swamp creatures. No, absolutely. Before I let you go, promise is the last thing. People like Joseph Kopser, your opponent, and by the way, you can go to chiproy.com, chiproy.com to, uh, help defeat this individual. Joseph Kopser is the type of guy that's going to say, look, I'm a centrist. I'm a moderate. Now, 
one of the most radical things going on. And when I say radical, I mean literally undermining the purpose of the founding of America. And that is the the amalgamation of private property, conscience, and religious liberty. Okay, that is the most unalienable of unalienable rights that I have the right to earn a living and not have to violate when I don't hurt anyone just with my private business, my private property, not have to engage in involuntary servitude for something that hurts my religious conscience or just, you know, to stifle my freedom of speech when I don't hurt anyone. We have a court that said in Arizona, this was a state court, but three days after Masterpiece, they took Anthony Kennedy's opinion and they cited it nine times and said that Kennedy made it very clear that in almost every case, as long as we make a law applied neutrally and consistently, that you must service uh, whatever, a gay wedding, uh, transgender um, castration surgery uh, celebration, whatever someone codifies literally under the acronym of, let me just get this straight, LGBTQ. I don't, I, I'm not sure if I left one of the numbers out or letters or you know, uh, signs on the computer uh, keyboard, but they, a judge codified that. I am scared that we are that everything we talk about doesn't matter until this is dealt with, and I don't see a movement to deal with this. What would you do if you're elected uh, to Congress to deal with the civil rights issue of our time? Well, first of all, you're right to point out the problem that we now have in the wake of Masterpiece. Those of us, the day that it came out, who are a little more circumspect in praising it, uh, because the court, I think I said in a tweet, you know, you know, you want a cookie. I mean, you got the basic part right and only the basic part right. And in doing and by that, I mean that, of course, the guy should have won his case. But the reality is that in all of the language that led to that, we now have essentially precedent and a roadmap for uh, the forcing upon us of uh, other people's values and belief systems against our own belief system. And so we've got to, um, you know, continue to go down that road to defend religious liberty. I think we need to take legislative action, remind people that Article One is primary and that the founders gave us Article One for a reason. We need to take power back from the judiciary. We need to impeach judges when they get it wrong. We need to strip their jurisdiction and we need to empower Congress by passing laws that clarify under the Constitution what we know to be true about uh, many of these civil rights questions and getting them right. Religious liberty must be uh, protected. And, you know, frankly, after Obergefell, that was one of the things we said here in Texas, like, all right, well, you just concocted this out of the law, or concocted this law out of thin air. Uh, we said that ruling under the 14th Amendment, which, of course, we disagreed with, stops at the door of the First Amendment. And you can't shove that down the throats of people contrary to their religious belief. So this is going to be the fight of our day. We need to keep fighting on it, uh, and I think you're going to see courts using that opinion under Masterpiece to um, uh, go down uh, the road that you just described, but we'll have to do our part to fight it. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Chip Roy. You can go to chiproy.com. Um, if you want a candidate who will not change his message, as you could tell, from the primary to the general election, Chip Roy is your guy. Um, thanks, Chip, for joining us, and please come back again. Hey, thanks for having me on. If people want to support uh, chiproy.com, uh, really appreciate you listening to Daniel. Daniel, keep doing the great work, and we'll talk soon, buddy. Will do. Well, there you have it, folks. I feel pumped up already. That was Chip Roy running in Texas District 21 for Congress. And indeed, we need him there yesterday. I mean, I wish we could just press a button and, and get him in there. You heard the passion in his voice. I'm telling you, folks, there is nobody else like that. I wish I could clone him. Um you know, he's literally one of us who just decided that, look, we always complain and none of us ever run. Someone's got to do this and provide a blueprint and actually fight on the issues, focus on the issues we want, focus on the data we want, focus on the messaging that is not being put out. And boy, he's he's committed. I mean, you know, we had him on the primary and obviously you could tell, you know, he believes, as I do, that a winning conservative message that stands consistently for fairness and justice and free markets and safety and security, you know, that that doesn't need to be tweaked in a general election. Obviously, I believe you got to explain yourself a little better. You know, you can't just say the Constitution, you know, um, when you're running for a more general election 
electorate with other people. You want to explain to them why constitutional principles, why conservative principles are will keep them safer and improve the economy. But you know, fundamentally, you should never have to change your messaging. And that's what I'm so proud about him. So you can go to chiproy.com. And I actually feel invigorated from having him on. And I'm really glad I did. You know, getting back to what I was ticked off about, I I had a conversation, you know, earlier today at a meeting. And I gave a presentation explaining the problems with the general criminal justice so-called reform movement, um, where it's coming from, where it's headed, and the specifics about this First Step Act and, and the other steps that they plan on promoting to just completely, in a one-sided fashion, without any balance, focus on the needs of the criminals, on letting go criminals without any understanding of anything. And I offered all sorts of arguments and data, and this this guy is like, he comes afterwards, and you know, is a guy working for a big conservative organization, been in politics for a number of decades, and he was just really ticked off. So first off, I I prefaced my remarks. I tried to, you know, because I knew there would be people in the room that disagree. So I tried to make light of it a little bit and say, hey, you know, I'm the last Jesse Helms conservative standing. So evidently he was really pissed off. So he tried to do the Lloyd Benson um, shtick on me. I know people who know uh, Jesse Helms and you ain't Jesse Helms. Oh, okay. Like that's really mature of you. And basically it was all, We've worked on this jailbreak movement for 10 years. We've worked on it. And okay, like, so, so, but how does that speak to me? I cited chapter and verse of the bill and the problems and the concerns that we need to address. Like, how does that speak? And, and literally, I realized I was playing out proverbs. Facts and logic and details don't matter. They just don't matter in this movement. And you'd say, all right, you know, your average person just gets taken in by things, but people who work professionally in this for a number of years would, would appreciate that. No. It just facts don't matter. Details don't matter. They just spew this. It's it's almost like a religion, the two-state solution. The two-state solution. So, you know, they've been so bought into it for 20 years that no matter the facts on the ground could could create a reality that look, you know, it, it's not working. It doesn't matter. I mean, just today. Data came out from a big report, California Prop 47, that downgrade a lot of drug and property crimes and let go a lot of people early from prison, which is actually milder than what they want to do on a federal level. And even the Sacramento Bee said that researchers that research has shown that property crime, particularly larceny and car theft, is skyrocketing there. Now, violent crime and homicide is now going up, still relatively low, but it's going up from the bottom, which is concerning. And it just doesn't matter. And I realized that I could sit and write article after article. I'm the most prolific writer on this. You might disagree with me, but at least I'm saying some valid things. Entertained it a little bit. And and, and that was my message. My message was kind of like, look, I understand some of us might disagree, but like, Let's let's be very careful here that not to fully adopt the Soros agenda. This is headed in a very dangerous place, and we need more balance. You know, maybe make it more targeted and parlay the leniencies against more stringencies where we all believe they they belong, and where the legal system is opening up more and more loopholes downright for murderers like um, you know, Kate Steinle's murder. And it was like it just attacked me personally, all about. We've worked on this for 10 years. Did, did you read the bill? I don't get the impression he read the bill. I don't get the impression he even knew what I was talking about. Like he never even read my articles. And I just realized it doesn't matter. And this is the problem with politics. It's all about groupiness and money. So Grover Norquist and the, and the Cokes are all getting involved and now suddenly they're good. They're a force for good, really. And then another guy's like, Daniel, obviously what you're doing is not working because all but two House members voted um, against it, voted for it. And if this went to the Senate, almost everyone would vote for it. Yeah, you're right. What, that proves I'm wrong? Well, what I'm doing on religious liberty isn't working either. What I'm doing on health care isn't working either. By that measure. Of course, that's my point. 
facts and logic and truth don't matter with the swamp. That's why it's the swamp. That's the point. And it's like I tried to tell him it's not that everyone who voted for it was a vote for it. I know a lot of members that hated it, but they were too scared to vote against it. That in itself is a problem. You know, these are conservatives. This is the problem we have. Just horrendous. And, And you know what's amazing? Congress right now, they're voting on 40, 40 opioid bills in the House this week. A number of them, some of of them are decent. They go after fentanyl a little bit. Some of them are just gratuitous, and some of them are downright nanny state. They create all these programs. When these very people are fueling the crisis with letting out drug traffickers and with the open borders agenda that they refuse to address properly. And and we'll get back more to the latest deal, what they're going to put out there with this leadership bill. You know, I will tell you folks, you know, one one thing I will say on this. So basically, the way they diffuse the discharge petition, if you remember, there was a, for those of you that haven't been following, there was a discharge petition that allowed a group of left-wing members, which is every Democrat and the MS-13 Republicans, a few dozen of them, to go and sign a discharge petition to get an amnesty bill out of committee without going through regular order and, and force a, a floor vote on the bill. And it's amazing. There's no Republicans trying to sign a discharge petition to to protect the safety and security of Americans on sanctuary cities, on the asylum problems, on the drug problems. No, it's it's only for I mean. I believe it's been decades since we've had the last successful discharge petition. And what's it about? Religious liberty, health care. No, illegals. So that's where their priorities are. But anyway, there were three signatures short, and basically leadership cut a deal with them and said, all right, if you don't pursue it, we'll allow two votes. One on the Goodlap bill, which is an amnesty but a non-citizenship work permit amnesty for just 700000 that got the status illegally. And then it has mainly the other um, interior and border enforcement provisions we want. And then it has um, uh, basically a phony four principles. You know, the president's four principles on immigration. Um, the only principle that's real is amnesty, and the other ones are just fake. Bait and switch kind of will in- increase these visas but decrease here and move them into here, and obviously nothing meaningful on interior enforcement. So, and then of course no e-verify, which we all know if you did that, if you really want to shut off illegal immigration and shut off death and mayhem and sex trafficking and drug trafficking and MS-13. If you did E-Verify, this whole thing, this whole chain reaction would stop. Um, and it's pretty pathetic. But anyway, I'm hearing now that Stephen Miller and the White House, there, you would think, so now, you know, the, the, the premise is that both bills will fail and nothing will get done. Meaning the amnesty bill, has, you know, even for the Democrats, it has too many good provisions for the American people, so they'll vote against it. So it will just be the liberal Republicans, and then the good bill, it's only the conservatives voting for it, and no one else, so they'll both fail. So you would think now would be a time when the president would push the Goodlatte bill, lock, stock, and barrel, give a speech on it, call out all of the liberal members for not voting for it, by name, shame them, shame them in their districts, threaten to primary them like he's doing with some conservatives, like he did with Mark Sanford, and we'll get to that in a minute. South Carolina. No, instead, they're working for the more liberal bill when the Goodlap bill itself is a compromise. Like, you know, I agree with Steve King that once we know, look, if the Goodlap bill would become law on net, it would probably be worth it. That type of amnesty. But it's not anyway. So if they're both going to fail, why not stand on principle and stop agreeing to the baseline that we that DACA is a is an imperative rather than DACA being a cancer and the impetus for the drug and gang crisis in this country and the superlative magnet that's basically empowering the drug cartels and the sex traffickers and exploiting children, both American. I mean, when you look at the stories, it's heartbreaking. In my home state of Maryland, the MS-13 run schools all brought in by the unaccompanied, and they're not unaccompanied, they are accompanied, 
and many of them aren't even children, destroying our schools all because of DACA? Are you kidding me? We should never do any DACA amnesty. But nonetheless, that's the compromise. And my fear was then we'd compromise on the compromise, which is what Trump is doing. But no one's calling him out on it. Everyone's too scared. And this is how we don't get the positives, at least on domestic policy. We're getting a lot of positives on foreign policy. And where's the president's veto threat? Veto. I have a strategy we talked about last time and I wrote about. No one's pushing this because they're too busy pushing jailbreak. It's unbelievable. And with that, I want to address the elections last night. You know, Tuesday night's election, we know that now another incumbent, Mark Sanford, was defeated. Now, this is a little complicated because a lot of my colleagues are very upset that, look, we lost a Freedom Caucus guy and you know the president doesn't endorse, doesn't get involved when we need him. And finally here, he gets involved. And that's a very valid point, and that's kind of the point I'm making. I would just say it's a little bit complicated here. Mark Sanford was a little bit weird, to say the least. Um, first of all, he was extremely libertarian, so he was good on most fiscal issues, but you know, not in a lot of the good security stuff we talk about um, was not really with us. And even on fiscal issues, he recently joined the Global Warming Caucus. I mean, he's just kind of weird. Um, just bizarre. And then Obviously, you know, most people in his district st still remember the Appalachian Trail. I mean, so, look, I, people could repent, but I, I happen to think that if you have a scandal in politics where you notoriously cheat on your wife in such a bizarre way, you should maybe call just, you know, live your life out and repent privately rather than run for office. So I was never just – it's just kind of a bizarre situation there. I don't know what this – um. Katie Addington is going to be like who defeated him. But the point is still true. That why is it that the president is only honed in on the things he wants to be, but we don't have a conservative movement saying, hey, Mr. President, what about all these rhinos pushing amnesty? Why don't you defeat them? Why is he not pushing for my, you know, Jaron Jackson's running in Oklahoma. That election is in two weeks. People that downright support the MAGA agenda. You know, I said this before. Okay, so he's too scared to endorse against incumbents except for the ones that he takes personal. But, you know, what about what about in Ohio where you had two open seats where you had Jim Jordan endorsing two women respectively in each seat? These were open seats. And Kevin McCarthy had pukes there. And they were pretty close elections. So he could have won them. And we could have used Trump's endorsement. And he was nowhere to be seen. And and these were not even like, I don't know, like constitutional conservatives so much. I mean, maybe they were also, but they were more MAGA populists. They were very much Trump. So, you know, what's the deal? But again, I have a feeling that, you know, Kevin McCarthy made sure that he stayed out of it. So why is it that the establishment is organized and working Trump to their advantage, but we don't have that? It's because we have a movement where facts and details don't, and strategy don't matter. It's all vanity. That's what I learned today. No matter how much work I put into issues, it just won't matter. I hope it matters to the general public. You know, I, I apologize ahead of time for not getting to all your emails. I do see almost all of them. Um, I try to, res I, I think I respond to most of them. Sometimes it just depends where I am when I receive it, if I get it on my phone. You know, it's harder to respond, but I will try my best. And I, I really, you should just know, I, I, it means a lot to me from the bottom of my heart because it's the type of deal that it just tells me, wow, maybe, you know, it does resonate with some people because it sure as heck doesn't resonate with the swamp. And when I say the swamp, I include professional conservatives taking money um, under the guise of doing something very different than what they're actually doing. And there's a lot to talk about. I mean, tons of issues I didn't even get to. Gosh, we, you know, we could do a whole nother show on it. North Korea, obviously, you know, it's too early to tell. It's too early to tell. 
I don't see anything really bad that the president gave up and you know a, a certain ransom to them. Um, I, I look, I don't feel comfortable with some of the rhetoric he's using to butter up Kim. But look, if he really does have some leverage with China that he's utilizing and he is getting something for it, I think time will tell. So you know, this is the type of thing I really feel more than almost any other issue. You can't really commentate on in real time. You got to see what ultimately plays out there. Um, you know, if, if you want to see more about what I think, go to Steve Dace's show today with his, uh, it was with, uh, Todd and Aaron, the crew were in, cause Steve is actually in DC today. Um, but it's just, it's just amazing. It is absolutely amazing that we've come to a time where we have so much opportunity with the president and we don't have people making the plays. And what I, what I want to end with is religious liberty, as, as, we, as I alluded to with Chip. You know, this was literally 30 minutes after I recorded Monday's show. This came out, I saw this article, and hat tip LifeSite News for uh, apprising me of this. The Masterpiece case was on Monday. Three days later, this Arizona case came out. Look, I take no pride in saying, see, I told you so. When all these conservatives are like, oh, we won, we won. We don't have to worry. The courts, Anthony Kennedy was so magnanimous and so so eloquent. Oh, speaking to the need to respect religious people. And I said, dude, if you look at 99% of what he said, he said straight up that you no longer have property rights and that the dignity of the homosexual agenda trumps the First Amendment. He said that in every other case. And indeed, three days later, uh, an Arizona judge cited nine times for Masterpiece to make that case. And one of the things I told you is that the state and lower federal courts are going to have make a heyday out of this, and you've got to cut that off. But all these people, including that person that insulted me today, who, by the way, supposedly works for a social conservative uh, organization, I'm not seeing him promote any of the religious liberty strategies and legislation that I'm pushing or call for judicial reform. And, you know, that just reminds me, that's just another thing where, like, facts and data don't matter. So all these people are saying, what do you mean Trump's remaking the courts? We're winning the courts. And I'm saying, dude, this is another example of where you're taking this abstract thing, like criminal justice reform. Uh, prison reform, fic- uh, appoint more judges, and you're taking abstract things that don't comport with the facts on the ground, the trends, the reality, the learned human experiences, and the data. And I went and literally went circuit by circuit, judge by judge, who are we replacing? And I can tell you that, look, in absolute terms, it's better than if Obama would have been there, but fundamentally, you're not changing the circuits where the left is going towards. And and you know all the arguments we've been making but again, I mean, it falls on, it falls on deaf ears. Now, I hate to be crude here, but it reminds me of, you know, a while back, I forgot where this was. There were, you know, just people, maybe neighbors or friends or relatives. And, you know, it's so hard to talk politics with people because they just make stuff up. And, you know, when you sit and you follow everything, you study everything, and how do you give that over when someone could just swat you down by making stuff up? You, know, you, you could give a whole dissertation and a guy could you know just pass gas and oh okay so you know I started to realize you know it was somehow during the primaries like someone was just saying these vacuous things about Ted Cruz like I, I don't like his face or something or I don't like you know so I just started responding by like you know I said you know and, and I, I'm making this up I don't know who, which candidate but the example of what I gave is you know Rather than me sitting and giving a whole thing on why Marco Rubio is a fraud and you know none of what he says is he's going to fulfill and everything, you know it's not going to work. So I just said, you know, Marco Rubio every time he speaks, he looks like he's farting. He just does. Now, I mean, it's not true. I'm I'm just I totally made it up because I realized like that that's the only way to have a conversation. I mean, this is what it says in Proverbs. I mean, you can't have a conversation with a fool, and that's what I tried to do earlier this morning. When the facts and details don't matter, I don't know what you do. But again, you know, this is not just with these people. This is with people that have worked in this movement for 30 years. Just doesn't matter. Money and groupthink is all that matters. 
And it, I, I just find amazing. I'll say it again. I've said this so many times, but it's, it's worth repeating. In every other profession, people know what they're talking about for the most part. You know, otherwise their business wouldn't succeed, whether they're a doctor or a an engineer, an accountant. When it comes to politics, particularly conservative politics, they literally don't know what they're talking about. They don't bother to study it, and they just spew. I mean, I really make my best effort. You know, you guys know, I mean, I know we have all sorts of people, including liberals that listen to this show. And I know some of you who are liberals that listen appreciate just at least the fact that I do my homework and I don't fax it in on the cheap. Agree or disagree with me, I don't do things on the cheap. I'll really follow up on an issue and really, you know, observe it for a long time and study it to, to the best of my ability. Um, you know, otherwise, I'll say like, you know, with North Korea, I tell people, look, so much of this is is behind the scenes wrangling. I just don't know. I don't know what to think yet about the summit. In general, before the summit, it was headed in a good direction. The summit itself, I just don't know. I don't have a problem saying that. It's it just, it is unbelievable. Anyway, um, we're about out of time. We're going to hopefully have Brandon Judd, the head of the Border Patrol Union, on Friday's show for our Foreign Policy National Security Friday. Um, so look out for that. And also, Folks, as um, this individual told me in very cold terms, what I'm doing is not working, and everyone in Congress disagrees with me. So jailbreak will be the new Fed, and you're going to need to protect yourself. And that's why I need you guys to all support our amazing sponsor today, We the People Holsters. You go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash conservative. And you'll get the special $10 off for conservative conscience listeners. Inside the waistband, outside the waistband, all custom made. All, all the parts are made in America. They take pride in their custom molds. And they are conservative. They are supporters of the Second Amendment. They are being censored on many other platforms from selling their products. So, I mean, this is really a win-win for all of you. You support the conservative conscience, you support the Second Amendment, and you get yourself a quality holster, 10 bucks off, free shipping, um, many, many makes and models. Just uh, shop online, any major Glocks and SIGs. Um, I got my H&K VP9. I would have an inside-the-waistband one, but I have an outside-the-waistband because we can't freaking carry in this insane state. Unless someone has some advice on how I finagle it, if you're familiar with Maryland law. Um, but anyway, we the people holsters, the most quality, most conservative, safest holsters in America. Thank you for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.